0: Hi, I'm Morgan Block, and you're listening to Climate Curiosities. The podcast where I connect you with real climate science and policy experts to address some of the most common curiosities about climate change. On today's episode, what about the oceans? Are they changing? And what is an oxygen minimum zone? Also, the COVID 19 shutdowns. Are they helping climate change? Luckily, today on the show, we have guest expert, Dr. Yasir Edabar. Yasir is a postdoctoral scholar at the Center for Climate Change Impacts and Adaptation at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. His research focuses on how climate change manifests in the ocean and, in turn, how the ocean actually helps us cope with climate change. (coughs) thank you so much for coming on the show today, Yasir.
1: Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure.
0: So before we dive deep into the ocean science, I'd like to start out the show with us introducing ourselves to the audience. What we're going to do is share two curiosities about ourselves, kind of like two fun facts. So I'll start off. I absolutely love the ocean and scuba diving, but I really hate the feeling of being wet, <laughs> which is so weird. But I prefer to either be completely submerged in the water or not in the water at all. And my second curiosity is land snakes really freak me out. But these oh. snakes are one of my favorite animals. They're fascinating to me and I, I'm not afraid of them when I'm diving and I see them. But oh. when I've been hiking and I see land snakes, I'm like, no, no. <laughs>
1: I just saw a snake this past weekend hiking in Mount Laguna. You would definitely not be enjoying that hike.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I always see snakes when I go hiking. Everyone else is, oh, I never see snakes. I never see animals when I hike. If you don't, come on a hike with me because they find Uh me. They know I'm scared. (laughs) And you see her?
1: So ocean related curiosities. I once speaking of wild animals and dangerous encounters about six years ago at the ocean sciences meeting in Hawaii. We just got to Honolulu and we went for a swim in Waikiki of all places and I thought I saw this big sea turtle in the distance. So we started swimming towards it uh, to go play with it. And all of a sudden, we hear the lifeguards evacuating the whole beach, saying that there was a giant tiger shark that had just came to the beach and was circling around. And it turns out that's what we were swimming towards. So
0: that's. Yeah, so
1: so we got out as soon as we could. So that's my dangerous encounter, only (laughs) dangerous encounter with the ocean. I guess my other curiosity is I've, I've always lived along 33 degrees north. I was born and grew up in Rabat, Morocco, and moved to Southern California when I was 19. And always stayed more or less at 33 degrees north. If I was to write a book about my biography, it would be called 33 Degrees North.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's Um, that's neat. Yeah, I like that.
1: Yeah, that's my habitat zone. I can't get (laughs) north or south.
0: (laughs) I'm really excited to have you on, on the show today. I would really like to use some of the time we have for you to talk about your own research at Scripps and your experience as a climate scientist and what you do.
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, so, I am a postdoctoral scholar at the Center for Climate Change Impacts and Adaptation at Scripps. And my research is mostly on how climate change and climate variability, so natural and human driven, impacts oceans by geochemistry. And what, by ocean by geochemistry, I mean the cycles of oxygen, carbon, and nutrients in the ocean. So, how does changes in climate, for example, due to El Nino, the seasonal cycle, human uh, anthropogenic climate change like CO2 build up in the atmosphere, how do they impact the carbon cycle, the oxygen content of the ocean, the productivity of the ocean, and how does ocean circulation, which can vary from a few meters all the way to the entire basin, how does that impact the distribution of uh, ecosystem drivers like oxygen and pH and nutrients? So to do that, I use both models and observations. And the models I use are typically global climate models. These are the ones that you might have heard from the IPCC reports. Uh, But there's now more and more observations, both from satellites, from Argo floats that are providing us with unprecedented view of how the ocean works. So So that's in a nutshell sort of what I work on and my expertise or my current priority is the oxygen minimum zones in the tropical Pacific.
0: Wow, thank you. So there's a couple things that you have just mentioned that I would love to revisit really quickly just to explain to everyone what they are. You mentioned Argo floats collecting information in the ocean. Could you explain what those are?
1: Yeah, so Argo floats are these autonomous vehicles. They're floats that are released by oceanographers as they go on cruise expeditions. They release into the middle of the ocean, and these floats can go all the way down about 2,000 meters of the ocean, to the depth of the ocean, and then rise up. And on their way up, they measure temperature and salinity, and now some of them are equipped with oxygen sensors, nutrient uh, sensors, pH sensors, and so on, and they measure how the ocean is changing, not only over time, but also over space. So the moment the Argo floats that have temperature and so on the sensors on them, there's about uh, thirty five hundred or four thousand of them spread all over the world. And for the ones with the biogeochemical sensors like oxygen and pH and so on, those I would I believe there's about two to three hundred uh, spread out around the Southern Ocean and uh, around the Pacific and the Atlantic and Indian Ocean. And the hope is to get more of those also. Spread out throughout the world's oceans so that we get a better idea of how the ecosystems are faring as well.
0: And so you mentioned oxygen minimum zones about your research and that these Argo floats collect data on oxygen, or at least some of them do. So Mm -hmm. can you explain what an oxygen minimum zone is?
1: Yeah. So an oxygen minimum zone, or OMZ as you'd hear in the literature, is an area where their oxygen. Content is naturally low. So we typically call that a hypoxic condition. For example, oxygen concentrations below about 60 millimol per meter cube. And that's a level below which marine animals can't r- really breed well. So the metabolic rate really slows down, and the livelihood of most uh, marine organisms is impacted below that level. Sometimes they're called dead zones, but that's probably not an accurate way to describe them because there's other marine organisms that can live in those oxygen minimum zones. Uh, Fishes that are well adapted to the OMZs or microbes that actually respire organic carbon that falls down. So an oxygen minimum minimum zone occurs naturally, and they're going to be found mostly in the eastern part of the basins of the Atlantic, the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And they exist because there's not enough circulation or ventilation, if you wish, of waters that are going to bring in newly oxygenated waters from the high latitudes into these regions. And if you remember from the class from the class that you took in winter, that depends on the, the subtropical gyres. So how do subtropical gyres recirculate waters around the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean? And so without enough ventilation, the oxygen content of those regions is continually depleted by microbes that are constantly respiring all the organic matter that falls off from the surface. And at the surface, there's a lot of productivity, so a lot of phytoplankton and zooplankton that grows and falls off. And as it's fallen off, microbes are respiring it, and so they're decreasing the oxygen content. And at the same time, there's not enough oxygen being renewed. So you end up with these huge oxygen minimum zones, uh, for example, in the Pacific, where you're not going to find a lot of aerobic life. So one of the most concerning aspects of climate change recently is that we've observed that these oxygen minimum zones are expanding. And one of the potential consequences of climate change is the decrease of oxygen in the ocean because oxygen is is sensitive to changes in temperature and circulation. So that really is driving a lot of the research that I'm doing and others on OMZs or oxygen zones.
0: So you say that oxygen minimum zones are natural, but that climate change could be making them more prevalent?
1: Right. Yeah. So because the the solubility of a gas depends on the temperature of the fluid of water. As you warm water, it can hold less gas. So that's the first mechanism that's going to dictate how much oxygen can stay in the ocean. So that we call that the thermal effect. So the warmer ocean can hold less gas, but that's only a portion of the change of oxygen due to warming. The other portion is that as the ocean warms, the surface density decreases. So it becomes more buoyant. So it becomes more stratified. So the upper ocean becomes more stratified and the ability of the ocean to ventilate its interior or convection and mixing from the surface to the ocean's interior is decreased because the ocean becomes more stratified. And so the oxygen minimum zones are going to be receiving less, even less oxygen because of that enhanced stratification. So the sum of this thermal and what we call dynamic change in the ocean is what we think is leading to a change in the oxygen content of the ocean. But there's some other uncertainties and a lot of unknowns that are still, we're still trying to figure out. For example, the oxygen minimum zones are really complex. If you go to the tropical Pacific, there's so many different types of currents. Uh, There's what we call the mesoscale. So these are the chaotic features known as eddies. We still don't fully know how biological productivity is responding to anthropogenic warming. So there's a lot of unknowns that we're still trying to figure out. And that's why, I think that's why it's really interesting to study oxygen zones, because they're giving us sort of an insight into how both ocean circulation and biology and chemistry is changing in a warming world. And another really fascinating thing is how the natural variability of the ocean itself can tell us things about the ocean. So how do, how do these oxygen zones respond to El Nino, for instance? So during El Nino, it's we think that the OMZs shrink and that's because during an El Nino, there's less upwelling. So there's less productivity at the surface and there's less organic matter that falls down and gets consumed by microbes but that's one side of the story we're still trying to understand how changes in circulation because of the currents and so on are going to impact oxygen so that's a sort of a small sample of the big questions that we're tra- still trying to figure out but the main points that we know is that the oxygen content is decreasing so there's plenty of observations that show that over the last 6 decades we know that it's huge concern to global fisheries regional fisheries to marine biodiversity And we know that it has consequences for uh, biogeochemistry. So, how much carbon the ocean can take up, how much nutrients are going to be available for productivity, and so on—all depends on how these oxygen minimum zones are going to respond to climate change. So, yeah. So, these are some of the big questions that concern my mind.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think a lot of people, when they think of climate change or they hear anything talking about that, they automatically think of the atmosphere and what we're breathing in and out and experiencing here at the surface, but the oceans are a huge part of the climate system, it sounds like.
1: Definitely. I believe the oceans are central. They're the driver of the climate system. For example, for anthropogenic carbon emissions, only about half of the CO2 that we emit every year is found in the atmosphere. The other half goes into the ocean and to terrestrial ecosystems. And for example, global warming as a phenomenon, about 90% of the heat that's trapped by anthropogenic greenhouse gases goes into the ocean. So we're talking about you know the driver of the climate system is also responsible for buffering or taking up most of the climate impacts. And that's really well-known. So there's plenty of observations from the Argo floats, for example, from hydrography or cruises that have been sampling the ocean over the last few decades, from satellites, uh, from sea level measurements and so on that are telling us that the ocean is taking up most of the heat, over 90% of the heat that we're trapping in the planet or energy imbalance is going into the ocean. And that's, that's really fascinating. And also it tells us that we need to measure it and we need to know what are the impacts of some of this heat that's going into the ocean. One aspect that is of interest to me is once the ocean warms, what happens to its oxygen content? What happens to nutrient cycling? How does productivity change as the ocean becomes warmer? And becomes more stratified. The other aspect is carbon. So independently of the warming all the carbon that we're emitting, about a quarter of it ends up in the ocean, and then it acts to acidify or reduce the pH of the water. That's going to have an impact on organisms that depend on calcium carbonates to build their shells, or even that are sensitive to pH. So we got these two different aspects of how the ocean is responding to climate change, So it's helping us deal with climate change by absorbing heat and carbon. But at the same time, it's those services are impacting marine ecosystems in ways that are are really complex and that we're still trying to understand, but that could be extremely concerning for fisheries, for the biodiversity of our planet. So that's, I think, just a few aspects of how the ocean is one of the central story characters of the climate change phenomena.
0: Definitely. And it just sounds like it's just so important. As a climate scientist, how do you make your research more visible to policymakers and people in the public when you have really important information to share?
1: Well, science is is very challenging. You have to be focused to do a lot of your work. So it's, sometimes it's it can be hard to reach out to the public with the limited time you might have, or sometimes the role of scientists can be constrained. You have to focus on the facts and you have to focus on doing the research. But I think it's also really important that we put these facts and what we know, including the uncertainties, out to the public, and especially to policymakers and to educators So for me personally, I found one venue is to go to the UN climate negotiations or the UN climate meetings every year and just share as much of the most recent research that we've been doing at Scripps and elsewhere on these topics, especially related to the oceans, to policymakers. And I, I found that to be a very impactful way of uh, raising awareness about some of these topics that might not be popular within policymakers. So I've been working with colleagues like uh, Professor Lisa Levin, people like uh, Natalia Gallo, the Director of Scripps, uh, Dr. Margaret Leinen, and various other people to try to bring the message that, hey, There's this whole other story to climate change in the ocean that we're not paying attention to. And here are some of the research. Here's our observing systems that we rely on to understand these phenomena. And uh, we found actually that most people really care. Once once they have this information, they want to learn more. They want to expand their observing systems, especially, for example, island nations around the Pacific, countries from Africa, from South America, have been very responsive to a lot of the talks, the conversations we've been having at these meetings. I think conveying information at these meetings is extremely important. But then every time I come back, you know, it sort of it doesn't go anywhere. So one of the most interesting ways for me to convey some of the research that I'm doing is partnering with teachers locally, going from this global scale to the reach, to the local scale, I think reaching to te- reaching out to teachers and students was probably the most effective thing I've ever done. So I've been uh, working with a San Diego Unified School District teacher who's implementing next-generation science standards here in California and with the California Science Teacher Association to try to put a lot of these science questions, a lot of these topics like oxygen minimum zones, El Nino, the carbon cycle, directly into lesson plans. So I interact, say, every a couple of weeks with a teacher. And I provide, for example, the literature, the papers, the contents, the tools, and the teacher in turn takes some of these concepts and designs them into lesson plans and into hands-on experiments with the students to try to get at some of these questions. And the result has been really fascinating. For example, my, one of my partners in this effort, Olivia Allison, who is a middle school teacher at Lewis Middle School, has designed a 12-week lesson plan on oxygen and zones. That's been absolutely impactful. So so those are some of the examples I've been,
0: I've been working on
1: to try to broaden the impact of my research.
0: That's really amazing. And educating the future generations on, on science is really important to making sure our society is demanding policy and action that is in line with what you're studying.
1: Yeah, I think as climate change becomes more politicized, I think one of the best ways we can inform the public is by putting as much science as we can into our discourse from K through 12 all the way to the policymaker decision making tables. So I think science, by providing information and guidance, is really a huge part of the solution to this complex problem.
0: Definitely. Talking about politics, one of the big topics right now is COVID-19 and everything that's going on with that. And a lot of reports and news reports have been showing these waterways with dolphins and it's all clean and beautiful and the world is just bouncing back and the skies are blue. So I've had a lot of questions from friends and family. What do we think about this? And is this solving climate change? Is... (laughs) Is the lockdown gonna fix all of our climate problems?
1: That's a good question. I think it suggests that we need to clarify a big difference between pollution and climate change. Pollution, for example, air pollution, once you release particulate matter or black carbon or volatile organic carbon, those pollutants stay in the atmosphere for a short period. So as soon as you stop emitting, These air pollutants, they react with other species in the atmosphere, they settle down, and then you get the clean skies and beautiful, clean rivers and so on. With climate change, it's different it's the long-term story. So this is, for example, for CO2, nitrous oxide, these are long-lived greenhouse gases. They stay in the atmosphere for 50 to 100 years or more. And so there is an accumulation problem. So all these changes in our lifestyles, including reduction in air travel, in land transport, you know, shifting to Zoom and to digital communication and so on, it's going to have an impact on the amount of CO2 say in the atmosphere. But that impact so far has been really small. And we have to sustain this for many years and decades before we actually see any major changes and in the Keeling curve, for example. So that's a misconception I think that we should clear out in the public that just because we stopped emitting two months ago or that we reduced our emissions two months ago doesn't mean that we're going to see it directly in the atmosphere. We have to sustain this for a very long time And we have to amplify these efforts substantially so that we actually see a change in the amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. So in many ways, for me personally, I find the COVID pandemic period as an opportunity to sort of show how important it is to first get going with reducing our greenhouse gas emissions early on, because it takes a lot of effort. And two, it shows how hard it is to reduce the greenhouse gas footprint of humanity globally. So that means we have to really think about our energy systems and so on. That's outside of my expertise. And here I'm sort of speaking as a public citizen. The other way to look at this is just how important science is to these global problems. We did not expect this pandemic. Once it happened, we turned directly to scientists to figure out, okay, what is this virus? How do we beat it? How do we stop it from propagating? And so I see a lot of analogies with climate change that we really got to be prepared for some of the unknowns that are lying ahead. And that's where the sort of the the process of adaptation comes in handy. We know that climate change is a major issue and we know that there are certain aspects that we don't fully understand. That means that we need to be adapting or at least we need to prepare to some of these climate impacts in the future. I think the pandemic is an opportunity to think about what else is looming into the future and how can we better be prepared and also understand how different regions might be responding differently to these global problems. The way the United States versus South Korea is responding to COVID is sort of another analogy to how will other countries respond to different climate phenomena as they occur in the future. So my main perspective on this is Science is awesome and it helps us be prepared to these global problems, and we should be always sort of pushing forward and looking forward on these topics.
0: Yes, I completely <laughs> agree. <laughs> <laughs> to end the podcast, I like to have my guest expert and myself model an example conversation for the listeners mm-hmm. just to give them an understanding of how to respond to questions if they get asked this by maybe a coworker, or family friend. Here's your question. Mm-hmm. The ocean is so big and it takes up so much heat. Do we really need to worry about it? I mean, how will climate change actually affect the ocean and then affect me?
1: Ah, that's a great question. So a really fast response. That's really hard for a scientist to give you a fast response. <laughs> the ocean is really big and it's taken up all that heat and all that carbon, but that heat and that carbon is going somewhere. It's warming the habitats of marine ecosystems of fish and mollusks and so on. The carbon is acidifying the habitat of those ecosystems. So if we care about the future of our planet, the biodiversity of our planet, the planet that you want to leave to your children, then yes, we should absolutely worry. For more selfish reasons, if you care about the quality of the fish you're eating, the quantity of the fish you're eating, the kinds of the fish, the livelihood of fishermen, the livelihood of countries that depend on the ocean. If you care about places that you're going to visit on an ocean-related vacation, say snorkeling or scuba diving, and you want to see marine life. If you care about our environment, I think, yeah, we do have to care. Perhaps the most important thing you can do is to be informed, because being informed knowing about these issues is going to guide the actions that you might be taking. And the best way to get informed is to read science, to read the literature, to go straight to the source and to go to credible sources like NASA, NOAA, Scripps, and so on. And with that information, you can make the right decisions and be motivated to make the right decisions.
0: Well, thank you so much, Yasir. It's been Really amazing having you on, and we've learned so much about the oceans and oxygen and everything from you, so thank you.
1: Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Morgan. Thanks for having me.
0: If you would like more information about the topics covered in this episode, please see the description for references. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember, Follow and subscribe to Climate Curiosities. See you next time.